Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've embarked upon our uh, project to study anxiety and depression and to uncover as many possible treatments as we can. And the goal is to make a low or a no-cost resource for people that suffer. So if you have any interest in this, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. We're looking for donations and help and volunteerism, et cetera. Thank you very much. Today, my guest is Brant Courtright. Uh, He's an author, psychologist, a speaker, and a professor or former professor. Professor Emeritus with the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies. And he's written four books, uh, two of which are Functional Psychology for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline, as well as The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle. And then his two other books are Psychology, Yoga, Growth, and Opening the Heart, and also Psychotherapy and Spirit. So, Brent, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I think you've probably interviewed more people on anxiety than anybody on the planet. So I'm honored to be here. Well, I'm getting there. I'm only up to, I think, about 35 interviews. But the goal is to go to uh, several hundred. So we're getting there. That's quite a bit. Well, you know, you have vastly more experience with it, I'm sure. So tell me a bit about your background and why you're interested in this area. Well, I'm a psychologist, and I've been a psychology professor for many years. And the main reason I see people in my private practice is anxiety and depression. That's the the big thing that brings people in, it seems like. And so for a long time, I was really on the psychological side of things. And in the last five or 10 years, I've come to see there's also a brain health side. There's a physical side as well really trying to put these two together because we are psychophysical beings and we can't reduce either one to the other side. So we need to good perception. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, I don't mean to say bad things, but sometimes it seems like, you know, a lot of medical professionals are just drug pushers and recipe followers. 
And yeah. it's nice when you run into someone that's like, well, what about this? What about that? And they're open to various different uh, ideas and you know reasons for someone's condition. That's right. There's, you know, there's been a, a conflict between like psychology and psychiatry. So in psychiatry, the idea is that if you're anxious or you're depressed, you've got some sort of brain disease that requires lifelong medication. And in the psychology side, it's been saying, no, 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 it's actually a matter of unskillful behavior, unskillful choices that leads to anxiety or depression. And then that brings about the brain changes we see. So it's been a kind of chicken or egg thing for a long time. And I've always been on the psychology side, but recently I've begun to see actually it's a chicken and egg thing. There's both a brain side, which medication doesn't really deal with. It covers the symptoms, but it doesn't really heal the brain, in my view. It's sometimes, sometimes medication is a lifesaver. But again, in my view, it is enormously overprescribed. So, and it's the same with psychology people. They're only coming at it from one side. So I think it, you know, we are psychophysical. Actually, we are psycho-spiritual physical, right? Body, mind, spirit. And I guess not to put too fine a point on it, it's actually body, heart, mind, spirit. We have a physical level, an emotional level, a mental level, and a spiritual level. And my view is that each person has a unique signature of interference on these four levels of our being. And they all get integrated through the brain. The brain coordinates and integrates all four of these levels into one coherent experience of the self. So what do you think? So if we have these four items, is what happens then one of the items starts to become compromised, let's say diet, or someone's having maybe a, a crisis of faith, and then it kind of spills over into the other areas. And once, let's say three out of the four areas are problematic, someone's, you know, I guess now has depression and anxiety. Is that the heuristic you're thinking? Yeah, I think it's it's often not just one. Many times it's a number of things are happening on all these levels. Because there are, like if we can just talk about the brain side of things for a while, and then before we get into the psychology side, because I, I think there, it's important to consider both. On the brain side, the brain is under assault right now. There are more neurotoxins in the environment than there ever have been. If you go to Wikipedia, you'll find 200 pages of lists of neurotoxins, 30 neurotoxins on each page, each with its own page. That's 6,000 neurotoxins that have never been in the environment before. Some of these we know about, like mercury and lead, but most of them are brand new chemicals. Let me give you just two quick examples. Smog. 90% of the world's population lives in smoggy areas. And the very tiny particles in smog, the 2.5 micron particles and smaller, enter the lungs, enter the bloodstream, and they're so small that they cross the blood-brain barrier, where they act like little wrecking balls in the brain, creating inflammation, oxidation. Some people think that 30% of Alzheimer's can be attributed to smoggy living conditions. And inflammation, we know that anxiety and depression are inflammatory conditions. And so... What do you mean they're inflammatory? Do they... Is meaning, it believed that they cause inflammation or they're comorbid with inflammation? If you have high inflammatory levels, you're probably going to feel anxious and or depressed. 
as well as it's going to begin to affect your brain functioning pretty soon. You're going to experience some brain fog. But clearly, anxiety and depression are also inflammatory processes. Now, which comes first? That's an interesting question. I think that oftentimes the inflammation comes first. Let me give you one more example, glyphosate. Glyphosate is the herbicide in Roundup, the most heavily used herbicide in the world, 300 million pounds of it every year in the United States and in China, Brazil, India. Glyphosate is an antibiotic, and so it wipes out our microbiome, which we know is a disaster. But it also opens up the tight junctions of the gut. Now, the tight junctions are what keeps out the bad stuff, but lets in the good stuff. So when the tight junctions open up, all sorts of toxic material comes into the body, which creates inflammation and leaky gut. Now, it turns out that the tight junctions of blood-brain barrier respond to these same molecular signals. And so the blood-brain barrier also opens up, letting in toxins, creating inflammation, oxidation, all sorts of other problems. So UCSF did a study about five years ago where they uh, looked at people all across America and found that 92% of them had measurable levels of glyphosate in their bloodstream. It's probably closer to 95% now. So that means 95% of the, 92% of the America's population has some degree of leaky gut and leaky brain. So the brain is under assault. I mean, this is just, been, we, could, we could spend this entire time simply talking about all the neurotoxins that people are exposed to. Plastics, phthalates, forever chemicals, it goes on and on. I was thinking that, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, myself, I'm breathing in, you know, I live in a major city in Austin, Texas, so I don't see smog around me, but I'm sure I'm breathing stuff in. And then, you know, all the chemicals you put on your body, like deodorants and, you know, yes. if you use hairspray yeah. and makeup and shampoo and, and all uh -huh. the foods you eat and all the crap and all the food and, you know, the, the things you drink. And I mean, it's just, it seems like just a, an assault from every direction on our body. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. That's absolutely right. You've, it's, it's, it's a minefield out there in everyday life. And nobody knew this, right? We all just stumbled into this innocently. Um, but it takes some real thought to really avoid some of the major neurotoxins, to detox from them, and then to really build back your brain. Because what happens is that there are common neural mechanisms underneath anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. And some of these common neural mechanisms, one are in, is inflammation, Inflammation is behind all the major chronic illnesses, right? Heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, on and on. Um, but also it's involved with anxiety and depression. Um, another one is a neurogenic slowing. 
right? So this is this is something almost nobody has ever heard of. Um, so we've known about neuroplasticity for four or five decades now, which is the brain making new connections among existing neurons. But neurogenesis was only recently discovered, right? It used to be thought that the brain stopped growing after our early 20s, and then it was just one slow die-off. But then they discovered that actually the brain makes new brain cells throughout our entire lifetime, until we die, till the day we die, we're making new neurons. That process is called neurogenesis. And together, both of these, neuroplasticity, which is called synaptogenesis, making new synapses, and neurogenesis, comprise our neurogenic rate. Now, at first, they didn't know what to make of this. They thought, okay, well, we thought the brain stopped growing. Now we realize it keeps growing. But then they discovered that our neurogenic rate has a profound effect on our mood and our cognition. What's the interplay of that? So plasticity, from what I understand, is, um, you know, your brain needs to understand something new or you know, work in a different way and you're able to accommodate that. You're not, I guess, rigid or fixed in your old ways of thinking. It maybe goes beyond that. But how does that interact with the likelihood of depression or not? Well, it turns out that when your neurogenic rate is low, we see anxiety, we see stress, we see depression, and we see cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. When your neurogenic rate is high, we see the opposite. We see rapid learning. We see cognitive enhancement. We see robust emotional resilience and protection against anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. So they did one experiment with mice where they increased their neurogenic rate by five times. And they became not not quite super mice, but they had big cognitive and emotional advantages over their normal neurogenic rate peers. And How do you um, modulate the neurogenicity rate what factors modulate them if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes that is the million dollar question that that's the perfect question to ask so my previous book was called the neurogenesis diet and lifestyle because it turns out that intervening on all four of these levels physically emotionally mentally and spiritually has a profound effect on our neurogenic rate The biggest one, I think, has to do with diet. And so in the book, I go into what I call the healthy brain diet. And it consists of four pillars. The first one is neurogenic, then ketogenic or low-carb, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. We can take them very briefly. I know we don't have a lot of time, but just very briefly. The book goes into about 40 different nutrients that increase our neurogenic rate. One of these are is fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids. A neuroscientist at the University of London increased the neurogenic rate by 40% simply by adding omega-3s to the diet. Most people are deficient in this. And DHA, which is one of the three omega-3 fatty acids, is the fundamental building block of the brain, right? The brain is made up of about 60% fat, And of that, about a half or a third of it is DHA. So we need a steady supply of DHA into the body, into the system, because the brain is always under construction. There's other things like blueberries, green tea, green tea extract particularly, Mm -hmm. 
turmeric or curcumin. Hesperidin is a bioflavonoid found in citrus fruits, and it keeps newborn brain cells alive so they aren't pruned. Again, the book goes into a number of things like this, but also important is avoiding foods that lower our neurogenic. Okay. Sugar is one of those. A high sugar diet will cut your neurogenic rate in two. Quick question here. What would anecdotally have you heard of multiple experiences of people that are experiencing high or low neurogenic rates? And if so, how do they describe it? Well, that's how I work with my clients. So I'm doing, I guess you'd call it clinical research here. And I find that when people start really eating well and really repairing their brain, making their brain stronger, that the anxiety tends to leave. The depression tends to go and people get off of the SSRIs, which they've often had a challenge doing. I've worked with people who have been on SSRIs for 20 years. By the time they get off, they just go through hell. But with these dietary interventions, people have come off successfully. Yeah, that's fantastic. But um, again, like, you know, have you done any self-experimentation where you've followed your diet or you've eaten the bad stuff? And, you know, what can you say you've experienced? Or again, a typical person, do they feel sluggish or foggy? Or what, what do they feel like if they're doing well or not? Exactly. So, yeah, I certainly eat this way myself. And I've noticed greater clarity. I've noticed my memory. It's like I was, I can now remember things that I couldn't remember before. Mm-hmm. And I just feel good. Like, I think when your brain is really functioning at peak performance, peak capacity, that just being alive feels good. feels good just to wake up in the morning. There's a vitality. There is a feeling of just, it's wonderful to be alive. And so it's not that bad things stop happening, but there's resilience. So when bad things happen and knock us over, we can stand back up. Or they think things don't knock us over as quickly as they used to. So I can tell you um, some days I felt like so good, I, I, I almost couldn't stand it. You know? I want to yeah. have more of those days. Yes. But I also realized like when I felt like that, I didn't even know that I could feel like that. You know, I, I was on the ketogenic diet for a long time and uh-huh. that kind of stuff. So those are some of the things I experienced. So maybe that gives a little more clarity to it. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. So yeah, ketogenic or low carb, that, that's another dimension to this. And a ketogenic diet is also neurogenic. It also stimulates the growth of new neurons and new connections. Anti-inflammatory because, you know, all these things are inflammatory processes. And so to lower your inflammatory rate is your inflammatory markers is really important. And the book goes into a dozen or so anti-inflammatory foods and nutrients that we can take. And then gut-friendly, because how we feel has a lot to do with the state of our microbiome and of our gut. So, you know, it used to be thought that there were many more bacteria in our gut than cells in the body. But now they've done a recount and they find it's about the same. It's about 40 trillion. And of that, most indigenous cultures have about 20,000 different strains of bacteria. Whereas in the West, with the the overuse of antibiotics and glyphosate and things like that, most people have 10,000 or less. Some people have as low as 500 or 1,000 or two, which is a disaster for the immune system. So we want to increase microbial diversity because the greater the diversity in an ecosystem, the more resilient it is, the more robust it is. The lower the diversity, the more easily it can collapse. So it turns out that 
there are a number of probiotics which have been shown to reduce anxiety and depression scores by 50%. I think taking some of these is helpful. But beyond that, and the book goes into those, but beyond that, I think we need to increase microbial diversity by the hundred. Taking a probiotic is good if you're doing it like for symptom relief like this, but we want to take in hundreds at a time, which happens when you go outdoors, when you're in nature, you know, or if you're swimming in the ocean, take a couple swallows of water because you're taking in hundreds of bacteria that way. Every new natural environment you're in, just breathing you're taking in hundreds of new strains of bacteria. And we want to also heal the gut. There are some strains of bacteria which do this, like plantarum. There's uh, something called ion biome, which is helpful for gut healing. There's a number of things that the book goes into. But, you know, the gut is sometimes called our second brain. 80% of our neurotransmitters are produced by the microbiome. It's also where 80% of our immune system is. So, so it makes sense if you have a dysbi- dysbiosis that it would lead to mental issues and all kinds of other health conditions. That's absolutely right. Yeah. You're probably going to be feeling anxious if you have gut dysbiosis. Yeah, that's right. So, Has so- anyone um, been able to correlate, okay, these species are anxiety-inducing, these species are calm-inducing? I don't know about the anxiety-inducing ones, but I knew, do know that there are several strains which have been shown to have anti-anxiety effects. And Life Extension puts out a, a product that has two of them. Swanson's makes one that uh, is strictly rhamnosis, which is another one of these, highly anti-anxiety. And so if we can begin to populate the gut with these and get these friendly bacteria going... That is also helpful in this process. So that's the the neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, gut-friendly piece of the pieces of the healthy brain diet. Exercise is also really important. Certain types of exercise have a powerful neurogenic effect, particularly aerobic exercise. Yoga is great, but has no effect in terms of your neurogenic rate. So that's the brain side. There's also then the psychology side because anxiety has a number of different psychological dimensions to it. So one, for example, would be PTSD. People who were very traumatized in childhood, it's like their nervous system is on red alert. They are hypervigilant and prone to anxiety disorders. You know, anxiety disorders are now the number one mental health disorder in the United States. It's getting worse. Well, the, the pandemic, past 18 months have been a huge boon. I yeah. mean, I'm sure it's helped everyone feel so much better. You know? That's right. That's yeah, I'm right. joking. No, it's been a scary time. That's right. And, you know, kids are affected more than anybody. Childhood rates of anxiety are eight times what they were in the 1960s. And that's not through better testing. That's using the exact same standardized tests as the 1960s. Plus, now we have autism, we've got ADD, ADHD, all the stuff we never even heard of then. According to the CDC, 38% of school-age girls have a diagnosable anxiety disorder and 29% of boys. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. I, I, in terms of like weight, I mean, I don't, I, I can't see directly into the anxiety part, but I know in terms of weight, you know, I'm 46. Um, I remember growing up in the 80s and like, you know, there was a token heavy kid. And now it's like everyone's heavy, you know, and yeah. 
Yeah. I'm sure it sounds like with anxiety and depression, or at least anxiety, the same thing's happening. Yeah, exactly. And the two are not unrelated because with obesity, we're getting a lot of inflammation. And mm. when the brain is inflamed, whether this is due to smog, whether it's due to glyphosate, whatever it's due to, whether it's due to eating too many deep fried foods, too much sugar, no matter what it's due to, the brain feels like something's wrong here. Something, the body just knows something is wrong, red alert here. And so anxiety is a natural response to this, except the person has no idea why they're feeling anxious. They have no idea what's wrong. And so it becomes kind of this generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, what are you seeing clinically? I mean, I know you're essentially describing it already, but you know, how long have you been a clinician and what were the patients like, you know, X number of years ago versus now? How have they changed? You know, people seem a lot more fragile now than they did 20, 30 years ago. Um, do, people seem to be much more thrown off by things, feel much more fragmented more easily, much more just prone to falling apart, much more prone to anxiety and depression than I've ever seen it. My students, I would do exercises in class that 30 years ago wouldn't phase anybody. Now, two or three people freak out maybe four or five people freak out because of their anxiety levels are so high. There's a general, I think, kind of weakening of the brain, which has happened. And I think that this weakening of the brain is due to these neurotoxins, due to glyphosate, due to poor diet, due to this neurogenic slowing that I'm talking And that we need to really create, a we need to heal the brain and allow it to grow stronger, more resilient. So there's also a psychological side. So we talked about PTSD, but also there's, there's a number of other reasons why psychologically a person is prone to anxiety. One is inadequate self-soothing structures. So, you know, just being alive is scary. And if you're a little baby, completely helpless, it's very scary. And little babies need lots of soothing, lots of calming, lots of reassurance. And so... The baby's scared. The mother picks it up. She holds it. She speaks to it in soft tones. She strokes it. She allows her calm nervous system to entrain the baby's immature, freaked out nervous system. And it becomes calm. That gets repeated many, many, many times. And after a while, that process gets internalized where the person wait a second, mom's not around. What do I do? Oh, wait a second. I've been through this before. I can, this isn't the end of the world. I can handle this. They, they begin to self-soothe. They begin to self-calm. So many people grow up with inadequate soothing, inadequate reassurance. And so they develop inadequate self-soothing internal structures. And part of therapy is designed to put those back into place, to get those going once again. Anxiety is also a signal. There's signal anxiety. So, and this is what I think most of generalized anxiety disorder is, or a lot of it anyway. You know, Freud talked about signal anxiety. And what he meant by that was early on, we learned from our parents that certain things are not okay. Take, say, for example, anger. Anger is not okay. Say it, it threatens my mom, it threatens my father. I quickly learn if I'm going to get angry at them, I can't do that. I need to suppress it. I need to push it down. And so, at, again, many repetitions of this, after a while, 
something happens. I start to feel angry, although I don't fully recognize it. My unconscious goes, hey, there's anger going on. Danger, 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 red alert. Anxiety happens. My unconscious pushes that anger down and then my anxiety begins to subside. I never even knew I was anxious. That is signal anxiety. We learned early on that certain parts of us, certain feelings are off limits, are dangerous. They threaten our tie to mom or dad or both. And so we stay far away from them. And so a lot of generalized anxiety disorder is simply this. It's, it's, it's in essence a fear of being yourself. And the way you learn to be yourself is in therapy with another person, right? Because we learned relationally that certain parts of ourselves were not okay. And we need to learn in the presence of a therapist or a trusted loved one that, no, these feelings are okay. I am okay if I'm feeling this, if I'm feeling shame or anger or whatever it is. So therapy can be very helpful for that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing a lot uh, more interesting stuff from you than, you know, maybe a, a run-of-the-mill psychologist that you have spoken to. It's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like you're able to help more people. You have a you know a perspective that includes, again, diet and environment and mental health and inflammation and all that other stuff. So I know you can't really give percentages or anything, but have you noticed in your practice that you're able to help a much higher percentage of people or are you helping them faster? Like what, what have you noticed? How is this helping you to help you? I'm helping people who I wasn't able to help before. And what has surprised me is that sometimes, in fact, more times than I, I don't even know the percentage, but quite a few times, what I'm amazed at is that as people's diet changes and as their brain heals and gets stronger, then they don't need therapy. I mean, they could still use therapy because we all are wounded and we all could use healing, but some people aren't interested in that. And when the anxiety goes away or the depression goes away, they're good to go. They don't need to necessarily go into childhood stuff. Again, I think it's best if people can do both, heal the childhood wounding and heal the brain. But sometimes just one or the other is enough in all of this. And what surprised me is that just healing the brain is often enough. You know, the funny thing is that psychiatrists would be in a position to understand this brain thing, but they are so indoctrinated into drugs that they really don't, right? It's just medical schools in the 1920s decided not to teach about nutrition and to focus on drugs instead. And it's been a problem, I think, for psychiatry ever since because they use medication. They use this, in the book, I talk about the false analogy of insulin, right? They say that you have a brain disorder and you need this medication for the rest of your life. Well, it's a completely false, just like a diabetic needs insulin. And it's a completely false analogy because PhD is not a, a deficiency in amphetamine or Ritalin. And anxiety is not a deficiency in a benzodiazepine, in clonopin or... I heard Adam- someone else, uh, I heard another guy say that. Um, yeah, this, he's a naturopath, a functional medicine guy, David Getoff. He said the exact same thing. Uh, oh, really? Okay, we're on a similar wavelength then. Yeah, yep. I heard about selling. So I'm glad to know other people are on that wavelength. So yeah, but healing the brain is possible if we know how to do this nutritionally, exercise, sleep. And I think the psychological side is also important. You know, most psychologists work on the doing cognitive therapy and, you know, there's a certain amount of value in that. 
for some people, it's very helpful. For most people, it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't go deep enough. And so that's why I think the depth psychology schools are really helpful, where you can really go into the PTSD or the signal anxiety or inadequate self-soothing structures um, or also even existential anxiety. You know, there's also a spiritual dimension to all of this as well. Because none of the psychological traditions talk about getting rid of anxiety, right? They all talk about reducing it. It's only the spiritual traditions that talk about a state of deep peace and quiet that is completely without anxiety. And it turns out there are a couple of spiritual practices which have a powerful effect on anxiety and depression and also have a powerful neurogenic effect as well. So one of these are mindfulness practices, and the other is heart-opening practices. They both provide very powerful neurogenic boosts, and they also put us in touch with a deep state of peace, right? Because our deepest core, according to all the spiritual traditions of the world, is spirit, is a soul, a spiritual being. And the essence of that is peace, is light, is love. And when we can connect to that and then bring that outward into our outer being, our surface self, then we can spread peace throughout our entire being. But if the self is fragmented, if the self is weakened, if the self has poor self-soothing structures, for example, then it's like trying to, you know, put water into a sieve. Peace just sort of flows through the self because it can't really hold that peace. So I think we need to work holistically here. We need to work at the spiritual level, at the psychological level, and at the brain health level. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, last question in this regard. Have you suggested to anybody or have you observed that someone has either found religious faith or lost it and that affected their depression? Yes. Losing your faith, absolutely, can plunge you into a perspectival madness. It can plunge you into a sense of despair, of hopelessness, and of being freaked out. I mean, when they talk about existential despair or existential anxiety, they're talking about a state in which life has no meaning, in which there is no higher purpose. And in the existential therapies, the idea is you create your own purpose. You find a purpose. You make a purpose for yourself. But the spirit traditions say, no, there is a larger meaning here that as we tune into and align our lives with, we feel more and more in harmony with it. But losing faith sometimes can be an important step towards a spiritual awakening. And to be able to fully go through that can be really important for a person. And sometimes it takes years. Um, some people never actually go all the way through it and they kind of abort it with alcohol or addictions or the, or what the existentialists would call an inauthentic existence, right? Many people flee existential anxiety, which is the result of the need to make choices, to be responsible, to be intimate with other people. That existential fear of those things makes people flee into an inauthentic existence of consumerism, of addictions of different kinds, compulsive behaviors, workaholism. And therefore, they don't confront these existential choices, these deeper existential quests for meaning. And so 
this is also an important part of therapy. Like, what am I here for? What am I, what is my life really about? What do I really want my life to be about? What is most significant to me? And to begin to align our life with those deeper values. And when we do that, the sense of actual existential anxiety begins to recede because we are more and more living from our authentic being, our authentic core. Well, very good, Brent. I, it's been great talking to you. There's a ton of info and insights, and I appreciate it. For listeners, do you recommend one of your books in particular or any of them, depending on their circumstance? Like, what are resources for listeners? Well, I think the my latest one is, is has all of it in it. And it's, again, it's functional psychology for anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. It really puts functional medicine together with psychology. Well, very good. Brand, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.